I had the best conversation with Michelle Sullivan. Michelle has a decade of experience as a reading interventionist and instructional literacy coach. Her expertise, especially around foundational skills, are sure to help all learners. She truly believes that all students can learn, and her mission is to help build teacher knowledge until every child can read. Now, I'm going to say that you can definitely see this to be true, and you can see her passion shine through through her engaging posts and reels that are shared on Instagram. In this episode, we are diving into orthographic mapping. Now, Michelle is going to break it down for you. She's going to explain what it means, why it's important. She covers the difference between high-frequency words and sight words. She talks about what skills are needed for orthographic mapping to occur. And on top of everything, she is sharing so many types of ideas and activities that teachers can do to promote it. So if you are ready to learn from Michelle, we will meet you inside. Welcome to The Literacy Dive, a podcast for teachers who want to take a deeper dive into all things reading and writing. I'm your host, Megan Polk. My number one passion is, you guessed it, all things literacy and supporting teachers like you. Join me each week to learn teacher tips and actionable step-by-step strategies to help you grow as an educator. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Literacy Dive podcast. I'm so excited because as I told you in the intro, we have a special guest today. And so, Michelle, we are so excited to have you on the show. I personally enjoy following your Instagram page and I learned so much from you. And so for those who do not know you yet, would you briefly share a little bit more about yourself? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I am literally like fangirl excited to be here and chat with you today. (laughs) So sweet. So my name is Michelle and I'm the face behind the colorful classroom and I'm currently an elementary literacy coach from New Jersey. And my role as an instructional coach is essentially to help teachers I work with not only feel like better teachers of literacy, but to also help them with the execution of things. So, you know, it can feel tricky or overwhelming when you're juggling every other content area. So I feel like, you know, I have that time to dig into the research and dig into what's going on in the literacy realm. So prior to coaching, I was a reading interventionist for many, many years, teaching readers who struggle in small groups. And so, like I said, I feel really blessed to have spent the past decade of my career focused on literacy alone. And then when it comes to the colorful classroom, like, yes, I love astrobrites and flare pens just as much as the next girl. But really, I view the word colorful as this multifaceted word. And we can use color with intention for instructional purposes, like even making activities multisensory. But we also can be colorful. And I'm reminded of your mini writing thesaurus, right? Because colorful (laughs) can also mean like you're vibrant and brilliant and rich. And so my hope is really to empower teachers with tips, tools, and strategies to equip them with what they need to teach literacy with excellence or to teach colorfully. I love it so much. I mean, that just sums everything up about you in one word, colorful. (laughs) And I know that the teachers that you get to serve in your actual building and also through Instagram are just so fortunate to be able to work with you. So. I'm super excited about this topic because literally you are the epitome 
of our topic of today. And so we're just going to dive right into this topic on orthographic mapping. And so I'm so excited that you're going to be able to share your expertise and share your knowledge and just be able to help us to understand a little bit more about what this is and then how we can be able to take this and apply it. So just kind of starting off at the very, very basic level, could you just tell us what does orthographic mapping mean? Sure. So orthographic mapping feels like such a buzzword right now, right? First, I just want to say that it's totally not new. (laughs) There is a woman, Linnea Airy, who's this big name in the science of reading community, and she first coined the term in 2014, so nearly a decade ago. And then the actual process of orthographic mapping is something she's been talking about since the late 70s, so well before I was even born. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And it's just with everything going on in education right now and our current literacy crisis, you know, reading science is just gaining more popularity. So terms like orthographic mapping are also coming to light. But getting into like the meat and potatoes of what it means, I'm going to have a little bit of a word nerd moment because I studied classics in college. So I've always been a fan of etymology and word origin. And I think that really helps break down the meaning of words. So the word orthography actually has these two meaningful units. So we have that Greek root orthos, which means correct, and the Greek graphene, which means to write. So essentially, our English orthography is our correct spelling system that we're using. And then we could turn orthography into orthographic with that suffix IC, turning the word into an adjective. So it's having to do with proper spelling. And then orthographic mapping is this cognitive process we're using in our brain to permanently store words into long-term memory. So it's what the brain is doing. It's not an actual activity. I love how, you know, with a, a lot of the buzzwords that are coming out now, it's like just bringing the awareness to like, this is not new. This has been around, but it's just something that we can now kind of like bring back up to the forefront as a way that really helps out kids learn. But you said something about our brain. Could you talk a little bit more about the brain science portion that you just mentioned? Absolutely. So I'm not an expert here and I'm still learning myself, but what I can share is pretty cool. (laughs) So first of all, we know that the brain is split into your right and left hemispheres. And I feel like growing up, I always learned the left side is more logical and the right side is more creative. And I myself, I'm like, well, I'm definitely right side. But the left side, so it does handle calculations like that math logical aspect, but it also handles reading and writing. And the right side of your brain is more visual and it's processing images more than words. So on the left side of our brain, there's these two processors that are present at birth. You're born with them. It's the phonological processor and the orthographic processor. And again, these are big words. But basically, the phonological processor is identifying or producing or even manipulating the speech sounds in our language, while that orthographic processor is receiving the visual input from printed words. So it's not a picture of the word. It's more like it's seeing the letter strings and pulling them out, the letter strings that are making up that word, if that makes sense. Yes. So then there's another area in our brain that develops or is hopefully going to develop over time, and it's called the phonological assembly. And when we're teaching systematic and explicit phonics, this phonological assembly region becomes this bridge between the two other processors. So it's connecting the two, and then we're also adding meaning into it. 
which is ultimately like, if I hear the sounds at, I know I can spell it C-A-T, cat. And then I know it's a type of animal, like a feline. So this is like a basic Cliff Notes version. But if you, you know, anyone wants to dig in deeper, there's a book called Reading in the Brain, which can be a great resource. Okay. That's so good. I mean, I, I've not actually read that one. I've heard excerpts and snippets from that book, but I've not read it from start to finish, but that will be one that I'm going to add because even like listening, it's just so fascinating. And I think once we know better, we can definitely do better for our students. And so thank you so much for breaking that down. Love whenever people can nerd out on (laughs) their areas of passion. So so good. (laughs) So with thinking about this in general, within the classroom settings, within teachers being able to support students, why is orthographic mapping so important? I know that there's this huge connection, especially when it comes to high-frequency words. So could you go into a little bit more detail about why it's so important? Sure. So like I mentioned, orthographic mapping is this cognitive process that our brains are doing when they're storing these words into long-term memory. So the reason it's important is that the more words we have stored, the more successful our reading outcomes are going to be. So we don't have to spend our whole cognitive load decoding every single grapheme in a word. We read more fluently, and then that ultimately leads to deeper comprehension. And the cool thing is that once a word is mapped, it's impossible to forget it. So it's there permanently. Like if I map the word the, I will instantly read it every time I see it without even thinking about it. There's no cognitive load spent but we might actually forget things that are stored visually. So if I'm looking at an envelope and I'm like, ah, what's that word again? Or if I see a face on the street, I'm like, what's her name again? It's because I'm storing these things visually in my brain. And essentially if we're teaching kids to memorize words, we're teaching them to store it visually, which is why like they might know the word one day and then they might forget it the next day. And you have that kind of inconsistency aspect but you literally cannot forget a word that's mapped because reading is not a visual activity, even though no. we are using our eyes. Right. Yeah. And the, there's a fun fact out there that your average literate adult, like us or one of your listeners, we have this sight word bank of about 30,000 to 70,000 words. And this is called our instant orthographic lexicon. So it's a bank of all the words that we have stored for automatic retrieval. We just know them in a snap. But do you think we learn them by sight or by memorization? Probably not. Like we just over time made these connections and started mapping words on our own. And I think one of the biggest reasons everyone's talking about it when it comes to high frequency words is because of some of the misconceptions about sight words or how words become sight words. So essentially, if we have the prerequisite skills that we need in order to orthographically map a word. It should only take about one to four exposures to that word for a student to know it. But without those skills, or even perhaps for a student with reading difficulties, it could take 30 or more exposures, maybe even upward of 100 repetitions. So, you know, think about if we're teaching our students 100 words in first grade or something, and they need to see it 30 times, it's just not an efficient means to learn it. So I think that's why orthographic mapping is just picking up so much popularity now. Okay. So good. That makes so much sense. And again, this is tied back to science and true statistics. And so I love that so much. Now there's a couple of things that I want to touch on next, but the first thing before I go to the second question, something you mentioned that a a lot of listeners are probably going to be wondering about, but could you just 
briefly go, or maybe not briefly go Uh over the difference between high frequency words and sight words, because I know that that is a word that sometimes I feel like teachers use interchangeably, but I know that there are some differences between high frequency and sight words. And then there's another buzzword out, which we've seen it on you know, different probably Instagram posts of people on Instagram and we've seen it in reels and we've we've heard about it when people are talking, but it's the word of heart words. So could you just kind of touch on high frequency words, sight words, and then this idea around heart words? Absolutely. So some of your listeners might be like, aren't they the same thing? <laughs> and you're right. Oftentimes people are using high frequency words and sight words interchangeably, but they're not the same. And I myself am guilty of saying to students, we're going to learn a sight word today, or let's practice our sight words. So let's start with high frequency words. So these are the most commonly occurring words in print. So the name in itself is its definition, high frequency. So their frequency and text are high. So these are the words like the, so, is, like, and they're in almost every single book. They're everywhere in our environment. And on the other hand, a low frequency word might be something like rogue or dishearten. They're just not in common. We're not going to see them in every single book. But our high frequency words are basically the words that we see on the dolch lists or the fry lists. And sometimes these are called sight word lists. And, uh, you know, that's where the craziness comes from. And just to note, we often think high frequency words have to be learned by sight because of this reason or have to be memorized. But actually, most of them are completely decodable. So we have short vowel high-frequency words like at and and. We have words with digraphs like that and this. Words with blends like jump or must. Silent E words like white or a vowel team like eat. So we definitely don't have to memorize them. We could just totally apply our phonics knowledge. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Something I'm in the process of wrapping up is actually sorting Dolce's 220 high frequency words by phonics feature. So teachers can align their high frequency word instruction with their phonics instruction. So that's on the way soon. That's brilliant. (laughs) I mean, it just makes sense and it works so beautifully together. Yeah. Yeah. But a sight word on the other hand is any word that can be recognized instantly and effortlessly. So the key word here is any word. So it could be a high frequency word like at, right? Or could. But it also could be a big, fancy, multisyllabic word like glamorous, or maybe even a content-specific word like photosynthesis. So the important thing to note that essentially sight words are unique to the individual. So my sight words might be different than your sight words, just like a doctor's and lawyer's sight words might have these content-specific words that we might not be able to recognize instantaneously. We might have to take time decoding them because we're just not as familiar with them. So the end goal is that we want all of our high frequency words to become sight words, but sight words are not just high frequency words. That is such a clear explanation of it. And I, I also was guilty of just kind of using them interchangeably until I started learning the difference between the two. And like you said, some of those high frequency can definitely be sight, But the importance with sight is that it can definitely vary and be unique from individual to individual. So, Hey teachers, I'm interrupting this episode for a quick moment because if you're listening to this podcast, then I'll bet you have students who dread writing time. 
Or maybe you are out of ideas, time, and energy when it comes to planning your writing block. You work so hard, so for once, give yourself the gift of having the planning done for you. My monthly writing prompts are trusted by hundreds of teachers and are a no-prep way to spark your students' interest in writing while highlighting special days that occur worldwide. The best part? There's a prompt for every single day of the year. Did I mention that it's already done for you? So what are you waiting for? Head to theliteracydive.com slash prompts to grab your year-long bundle of writing prompts. And then heart words. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So this is the one if you've kind of like zoned out, which I know you're probably all the way tuned in. This is one that you want to <laughs> listen up for. Yeah. These fall under the umbrella of high frequency words. So I'm going to give you a little analogy. So cats are mammals, but not all mammals are cats. So heart words are high frequency words, but not all high frequency words are heart words. So heart words are those high frequency words that are not 100% decodable. So they tend to have one or more irregularly spelled part. And I like the term heart word better than a regular word because David Kilpatrick, another researcher out there, he says that very few words out there are truly irregular, only about 4%. So many of the words that have this irregularly spelled part it's only one part of the word and it's typically the vowel. So for example, the word said, some teachers might say, this is an irregular word. You just have to memorize it. But the S and the D are completely regular, right? We hear that beginning sound and ending sound just fine. It's just the middle vowel sound. That's a little bit funky because it sounds like an E, but it's spelled AI, mm-hmm. right? So that AI part is the part that we have to know by heart. Now, I've actually had students in the past be like, I don't like hearts. (laughs) (laughs) So you can always just put an X or you can color code it. You can mark it with a squiggly line, just any way for them to pay special attention to that part, knowing that we have to give a little bit more attention to committing that part to memory. Okay. I I love that because I mean, you, I, I definitely know I had some students who were like, no, I don't like it. Or, you know, you might have just for whatever reason, they do not like it. And so just knowing that, great, the whole idea here is not even about the icon that you're using. (laughs) It's just letting you know that this is one that's going to take a different form that you're going to have to learn, but let's put, let's put a star, let's put, you know, let's put a sun, let's put something else there that you can do. So I like that you mentioned that, like just bringing awareness, but you know, we could be flexible, (laughs) flexible and you can deviate from the heart. That's so good. Now, the second thing that whenever you're mentioning it, it kind of like piqued my curiosity a little bit. And so if any of the listeners, if it happened to you, I'm about to ask this question. So come on back. But the pre the prereq skills that you had mentioned, so what are those prereq skills that are needed for orthographic mapping to actually occur? Yeah. So I think one of the things with social media too, is like everyone sees orthographic mapping. So everyone's like, telling their students now, we're going to be orthographically mapping today, right? (laughs) But again, I just want to say it's what the brain's doing. So the research says that in order for this orthographic mapping process to occur, students actually need three things. So the first thing is your automatic letter sound association. So that's just you're able to correctly identify letter names and the sounds that they represent. So it could be knowing that a B represents B or the K 
sound can be represented by a CK or CK, or even that IGH is a spelling for long I and so on. It's just things that we're accumulating more with phonics. And then the second thing we need is highly proficient phonemic awareness. And that means that we're automatically able to access those individual sounds in spoken words. So that we're able to perform those phoneme manipulation tasks. Because if I have the word bat and I change the b to a k, I can know that my new word is cat. And that's part of what mapping does. Like you're able to do that instantaneously. And then the third thing we need is an ability to have word study. So this is making the connections between the sounds in your oral words and the letters in the written words to secure them for that fast retrieval. So in order for that word study part to be strong, we need the prior two skills to also be strong, that automatic letter sound association and the phonemic awareness. So if you don't have the perfect storm, like I mentioned before, students might take 30 or more exposures to learn a word. But when you do have this little trifecta, students can literally commit words to memory in one to four exposures. And sometimes I think about students who are having difficulty, and I want to pinpoint that area of difficulty. So perhaps students know their letters, names, and sounds, but it's not automatic yet. Or perhaps students have difficulty segmenting words that they hear. So we're going to have to work on those prerequisite skills in order for mapping to even be successful and efficient. So I'm not going to worry about teaching kids words until they have this kind of down pat. That is so fascinating to me. Whenever you just like hear it as clearly as this, where it's like, yes, in the real world, it takes this many exposures, but with this combination, it can literally be the amount of, you know, times on your hand, which is just so needed for kids. So thank you for breaking that down. And so I kind of like this last portion is kind of a little bit more fun now, you know, with like now it's like you get to learn the science and you get to understand it. And so now it comes time for like the execution. And so I kind of like to leave this question for the end, which is what types of activities can teachers do in order to promote this and just make this a very successful time for their students? Yeah, it's like, bum, bum, bum. Yes, now that we know, let's get to the activities. So what can you offer us for activities? So I'm going to share three with you guys today, but there are plenty more. But the first thing I want to share is called phoneme graphing mapping. And when we see people talk about orthographic mapping on social media, this is the activity we're seeing a lot of. So again, friendly reminder, orthographic mapping is the mental process. Phoneme graphing mapping is the activity we can do to help students create these maps. So David Kilpatrick, he also sometimes calls it direct mapping. If you want a name for it with kids, just call it mapping. No, we don't have to get too fancy with them. Right. But ultimately, it's a formal routine we can use with sandboxes. And I'm sure plenty of your primary teachers have been using sandboxes forever, right? But if I'm doing phoneme graphing mapping or direct mapping, I like to follow three simple steps. And then I could really break those steps down further and elaborate on each one. But if you remember these three main things, you're golden. So the three main components are listen, count, and assign. So first, we're listening to the word, we're reading with our ears, we're hearing the word, then we're counting, we're segmenting the sounds, we're counting the sounds we hear, and then we're assigning the correct graphemes or spelling patterns to each phoneme. So one way it can go whole class or in small group is I can say the word said, and the students would repeat the word said, 
And then I would use it in a sentence to bring that context and meaning to the word. Like Megan said, I would like a cup of coffee. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) See, I know my audience too. Yes. And then we're going to hold up our fingers and we're going to count those phonemes. So that's where the segmenting comes in that phonemic awareness. And you can choose to use L-conan boxes or those sound boxes as a a visual representation. And then we're going to assign the proper graphemes to spell the word said. So I might say, how do we spell and the kids will go S. And then I don't, I actually don't like to go in order. I like to do the regular parts first and I save the irregular or heart part for last. So I might say, how do we spell the sound D? And they're going to say D. And how do we spell eh? And they're going to say E. And I'm going to be like, no, <laughs> not in this case. Or actually, this is a part we have to know by heart. And this word, we're going to spell it AI. And you're going to explicitly teach that heart part. So we're going to repeat the word as we point to it. We're going to segment the sounds again. Maybe you're underlining the letters that represent each sound. Perhaps you're even covering the word afterwards and having students practice spelling the word on slates or smart pals. They can spell the word using like different kinesthetic or multisensory techniques to reinforce like sky writing. They can trace on their arms. They can trace on their partner's back or on the carpet. Sometimes they can use different voices when they get to the irregular part. So there's all these different things we can do to kind of extend that practice. But what's most important is that you're just having that direct instruction. So sometimes we're seeing this, um, people are doing a lot of orthographic mapping in centers, but really for phoneme graph and mapping to be successful, you need that direct instruction. You know, the kid is just going to see how the word is written and put it in sandboxes however they want, but they need that direct instruction to know, you know, this is the part that we have to know by heart, or this part is, you know, the vowel or whatever. And then I like to do a little bit of reflective or guiding questions afterwards too, like with the word covered, ask them questions like, what was the beginning sound? How do we spell that sound? What was the heart part? How do we spell that sound? Or just whatever questions you could do about the word. Okay. This is so great because one of the questions that I know um, when I was still on different teams, no matter if it was, you know, kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade, or an interventionist, the main thing was like, oh, my kids don't know how to spell this word. Like, what do I do? And this is like the way it's like, right. Because it's irregular, you know, there is no way to really be able to to spell it, you just have to know it. So being able to take those words that you know students are struggling with or will struggle with because it is not just outwardly decodable, making it this own special time is going to be the way to go. So this is something too, I love that you mentioned, you know, the difference with centers is like, this needs to be direct so that you can bring awareness to it. You can bring attention to it. You can have students, you know, really begin recognizing, oh, that's a heart part word or This is a word that we just have to know in store. And so really that is the way that you will be able to get those, get your students spelling and reading those words is going to be by directly teaching it. So I love that activity. hundred percent. Another thing like in kindergarten, this might be direct instruction for everyone. Once you get to Mm -hmm. second grade, it might just be direct instruction in a small group. So you also have to know, you know, the students in front of you. And one thing I just want to know, I have um, different phoneme graphing mapping boards available in my store. 
but I also have a freebie of different blending boards you could utilize for mapping. So I definitely will share that with your listeners. Yes. So if you are listening, once you get done here, go to the show notes and all of the links that are mentioned are going to be right there for you. So definitely go and grab and check out the freebie and the resources so that you can be able to support your students in your classroom. All right. Now I'll get to the second routine. So while phoneme graphic mapping is an incredibly high leverage routine that supports orthographic mapping, it's not the only tool we need to rely on in our toolbox. And ultimately, we can't put every single word in sound boxes, right? (laughs) So one super powerful activity is to utilize lookalike words. So when you're showing students a series of words that are so similar, students have no other choice but to attend to every single letter in a word. So you're literally training the mental habit of attending to every single letter sound correspondence within that word. So lookalike words often start with the same letter, and they typically have about the same amount of letters in a word. And there's usually only one grapheme that's different. So guessing is just not an option. So they're not relying on context. They have to utilize their phonics knowledge. An example might be crack, clack, click, clock, cloak, right? So they have to go through and kind of look at the phonics and and read that word accurately. And those are a little bit more sophisticated. You have blends there. You have a vowel team. So depending on your students, you might be starting out with CVC words and you might only start out with two words. And perhaps you work your way up to a series of three to five, but it's really training your brain to look at the letters. I really love this too, because just like you gave those series of five words examples, I could see kids definitely, and I've experienced the same thing where they, they turn it into a game and they really just love it. They want to try to like figure it out. And so sometimes you just get their automatic buy-in that way. And then before you know it, they are able to do these skills. I love the lookalike words. I've not like heard it mapped out in that way before. And so I love that term because that's exactly what it is. There's so much similar, but there's one thing that's off. And then I think too, whenever they are reading, if they kind of go through something, you could also do the reverse and say, let's go back and look at this, you know, and you said this, but you know, try to do that backwards. So absolutely. It just becomes a strategy, another strategy in your toolbox. And it reminds me of those highlights magazines, right? Like what in the picture is different? (laughs) Yes. Um, That's missing from the other picture. So you're just paying close, close attention. And the third activity I want to talk about that promotes orthographic mapping is working on rhyme units. So when I say rhyme, it's the R-I-M-E, not R-H-Y-M-E. So David Kilpatrick talks at length about the importance of working with rhyme units. So the research shows that we're Yes, we map words, but we're also mapping rhyme units, not just the word. So this goes into that word study aspect of orthographic mapping, and the students are able to map these rhymes. And then that brings them to be able to read lots of words. And that essentially helps them map words all by themselves without the teacher. So we could do a little interactive game right now for your your listeners. But like just in a couple seconds, think of as many words as you can that rhyme with at. Cat, mat, bat, bat, right? Yep. Think of as many words as you can that begins with the letter M. They're going to be like Megan and Michelle. Yes. <laughs> Monkey, <laughs> right? Now think of as many words as you can that has a short A in the middle and you can't rhyme with the word that you said before. And now they're like mad at me. They're like, this yes. kind of <laughs> <laughs> We can think of one. You're like, now I can't rhyme? Like, okay. Think of as many words as you can that has a 
T at the end. And again, you can't rhyme. So they're going to be like cat. And they're like, oh no, I want to rhyme. Yes. Light. Like Uh (laughs) Like it Uh takes longer, right? So it's extremely difficult to rapidly recall words based on the middle vowel sound and the final sound. So our mental recall system, again, the way our brain is working is it's organizing words by that first sound or by the rhyming patterns. So our memory system is not organized by that isolated middle sound or isolated ending sound. So when students do a lot of work with rhymes, it's just promoting this mapping process because, you know, as you could see, we have that stored automatically for to like spit things out too. That is so good. Okay. So we have these three activities that are honestly very, very simplistic to be able to get up and running do not require a lot of materials. It's just your brain and being able to teach these different strategies that can be able to support them with this skill. So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Before we wrap up, are there any last minute ideas or words or anything that you would like to share before we wrap up this episode? This has just been golden. I am just (laughs) like in awe of all of the things And this is just like not even scraping the surface of what you have to offer. You know, I've been seeing your page and I'm just like, oh my gosh, there's so many ideas here. So is there any last minute things that we could be able to take away? My biggest tip. So like you mentioned, there's no fancy tools, right? These are just things like if your teacher knowledge has it, you could just do it tomorrow, right? But my biggest tip is just to make it multi-sensory as much as possible, So when we hear the word multisensory, sometimes the first place our brain goes to is like big mess of shaving cream, (laughs) but (laughs) multisensory just means you're activating two or more senses simultaneously at the same time. So for years, programs pushed for multisensory activities for students with dyslexia, but now this reading science is showing us that it's beneficial for everyone. So this can involve, you know, tracing and saying sounds like I was talking about with phoneme graphing mapping. You can have like a tactile surface to trace on like sandpaper or even like the carpet. You don't need to go buy, you know, fancy tools, but it could involve even using our fingers or other parts of our bodies to do phonemic awareness, to tap out sounds or to stretch out words. It could involve using manipulatives like counters or unifix cubes, probably a lot of stuff you already have in your classroom for math or even Play-Doh, right? We want to make the abstract more concrete. Like sounds are abstract. We can't touch a sound, but we can touch a counter that represents a sound. So we can manipulate a unifix cube and make that sound tangible. So anything you can do to make it multisensory is going to give you even more bang for your buck. Perfect. Thank you so much just for coming on and sharing what you've learned. And I, I love how you said in the beginning that, you know, yes, I've done my research, but I'm still constantly learning. And I think that's just how we evolve and grow as educators is by, you know, taking on something, but just continuing to dive into information. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and your passion and what you have been able to become an expert at with all of us today. And so for those listeners who are probably like, I want more, no, 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 don't end the episode. (laughs) For those who are wanting to continue learning from you and they're wanting to just kind of, you know, get some more of your strategies and your ideas, where can our audience members find you? Yeah. So they can find me on Instagram. My handle is Michelle underscore the colorful classroom or on my website, Michelle in the colorful classroom.com. So definitely send me a DM, send me a message, anything you want to see more of. I will make the content for you. I will write the blog post for you. 
send me an email. You know, I would love connecting and hearing from your audience. And thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Come hang out with me over on Instagram at The Literacy Dive. I would love to hear from you in my DMs. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to hit that follow button and share this with a friend. I'll catch you in the next episode. 